Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Uh, getting the podcast out a little bit later today since uh, duty called this morning and this afternoon. Uh, today being Monday, November 9th. Uh, it was day one of my two-day online training for grading from the inside out, so I was busy with that this morning and this afternoon. You know, it's funny, I haven't set foot on a plane since March 13th, but at least recently, I'm no less busy than I ever have been. It just seems like the Zoom trainings are coming fast and furious, So, uh, but it's all good uh, because I love my work, and, and so I'm not complaining, but it's just one of those times a year where I think we're all kind of getting used to Zoom now, so... Uh, and, and facilitating PD sessions on Zoom. So it's it's really been an enjoyable experience. Uh, and it seems to be working. So I, I know it's not the same as face-to-face, but I think we're still having some, some high-quality conversations about assessment. Hey, thanks for hanging out again this week. Uh, another great weekend. Uh, weather was good, but things aren't looking so good for the fantasy football team. Uh, just another update for you. Looks like I'm taking the loss this week. So six and three it is, but... Uh, You know, it was a tough week. I had a couple of players in a bye week, but that really wasn't the issue. Uh, The issue was one of my wide receivers earning exactly zero points. Yeah, that's problematic when you have a fantasy football team. So, hey, that's the way it goes sometimes. Still feeling pretty good. Still a solid record. So, uh, should be in the playoffs. But, hey, I'll keep you updated each week. Now, as you've heard me say a few times, uh, I'm working on the format. Still thinking about segments. Trying to find the right balance for the podcast in terms of length. So, as I change things up, I really appreciate it if you could let me know what was working, what's not working, you know, if you've got ideas for different segments or interview guests or questions for Assessment Corner, remember to reach out through the email, that's tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, or via the Twitter handles, my personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer, and for the show, it's at Tom Shimmer Pod. so lots of ways to get in touch with me, and I would love to hear your feedback uh, about the podcast. I am thrilled to have Katie White joining me for the interview today. Katie is the second Canadian in as many weeks. Uh, We had Josh last week, and of course we have Katie this week. Katie hails from Melfort, Saskatchewan. Now, like Nicole a few weeks back, Katie is one of my closest friends and one of my closest colleagues. And we dive deeply into assessment and explore what she calls both the soft and the hard edges of assessment as well as take a deep dive into her assertion that assessment is the key to unlocking everyday creativity. So we had a great conversation, uh, so I hope you enjoy that. Katie is a deep thinker and someone I really admire. So again, I hope you enjoy the conversation we had. In Assessment Corner, I'm going to go back to last week and finish off a little bit of the conversation about rubrics. You remember last week, uh, the question was, hey, Tom, what what are the best kinds of rubrics to use? And we kind of looked at the pros and cons of analytic rubrics, holistic rubrics, and single point rubrics, and talking about the, you know, the upside and the challenges that we might face with any of those tools. Well, I'm going to talk today, just finishing that conversation, about two other ways that you can create some efficiency and effectiveness with how you use rubrics, and that'll tie a bow on that topic for a while anyway. So that's the plan for today. So let's get to it. Katie White is coming up in a few moments, but first, don't at me, but I've got something to say, and it's actually a question. And the question is, what happened to the debate of ideas? Now, this is something I've been thinking about for quite a long time now, and it really seems relevant and timely, 
given what we just experienced in the U.S. election and the intensity of that campaign. Now, to be clear, this is not about politics. It just seems like in so many areas of life, whether it be for something that really matters, like our professional lives, or something as frivolous as, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? It just seems like the art of debating ideas has been lost. Social media undoubtedly plays a huge role in how this is played out. I've experienced it. There is definitely a lot of keyboard courage out there. I'm sure you've had that experience where you read someone's post, especially on Twitter and Facebook, and you think to yourself, you know, I don't think you'd say that to that person if they were standing in the same room as you. I've actually created a rule for myself on social media. Now, I do break it from time to time, but I wish I didn't, but it does happen. And my rule is I don't debate or respond to cartoon avatars or handles that don't identify who the person is. I'll check their bio too if I have to, but if I can't know who you are, then debating is pointless. I know this because of the number of hours I have wasted over the last decade responding to the so-called trolls on Twitter and Facebook. And what I noticed too is that the less recognizable they are from their Twitter handle or their Facebook profile, the more likely they are to come at you as hard as possible. Now look, it doesn't happen to me a lot, but it does happen, and I just wonder how we got here. Why do we seem to need to vilify the people on the other side of a debate? Now what's interesting is that I learned a long time ago, and I'm sure you learned this lesson too, that the first person to make it personal knows they're losing the argument. At least I thought I knew that, because now it seems like everything is so personal, so quickly. It escalates from zero to a hundred in no time. Disagree with somebody about education, and what you get back is, you must hate kids, or why do you hate teachers, or you don't understand education, or how could you call yourself a teacher? Disagree with somebody about economics, and you get the, you must hate the middle class, or you have no clue how economics works. And disagree with somebody politically, and not only does it get personal, it goes nuclear. And people fire back with, look how naive you are, or how privileged you are, or you need to wake up. No one is allowed to just disagree anymore. No longer is it okay to have a different perspective. If you don't think like me, then there has to be something wrong with you. Again, political rhetoric has made this even more heightened and more intense. It's almost become habitual now to vilify and dehumanize the other side of the debate, the people on the other side. You see, if I can vilify you and dehumanize you, then I can neutralize any ounce of credibility that your argument might have. It may also reveal an inherent insecurity in you when you make it personal. It may be an insecurity you have about your position, right? Because if you're right, and you believe with all your soul that you're right, and you are right, and you're convinced that you're right, then there's no need to get personal, right? If your position is superior. I also think we sort of crave this sensational part of life. Because life is pretty boring. And look, life is not boring. But what I'm saying is it's definitely boring in comparison to what we see on TV or in the movies. I kind of think that that's where conspiracy theories kind of come from or how they cultivate. You see, you vilify one side of an issue and then you create this sensationalized experience or idea 
because we have this desire for life to imitate a Hollywood movie. And once you do that, you have a lethal combination. Now, let me pause here for a second, because there are times where motives are nefarious and can and should be called out. But it seems to be happening so frequently that it's almost losing its impact in the similar vein as it is to what many refer to as cancel culture, where I, for one, can't keep track of the hundreds of TV shows and movies that I'm not supposed to watch anymore and the dozens of businesses and stores that I'm supposed to boycott. Again, I'm not saying some businesses, celebrities, or even everyday people don't have nefarious motives, but this just now seems to be the immediate default. Is it maybe the echo chamber we all, to some degree, live in online? Now, there is that fine line, isn't there? You follow people, you listen to people, and you listen to them because they have a like-mindedness with you. But there does come a point, a tipping point, where you almost subconsciously curate your own echo chamber. The other issue I see is that social media rewards hyperbole. In our attempts to outflank each other, to who is the most innovative or definitive or who's the most woke, we go to the extremes because we, and look, I'm not excluding myself from this, we think the validity of our point of view is measured by how many likes, shares, or retweets we get. Well, of course those in your social media feed are going to like what you say because you have curated these like-minded people. And then, because of that reinforcement, we dig in and are unrelenting in our way of thinking. When was the last time you changed your mind because of something someone said on social media? I'll wait. I'm not sure I have either. Now, I thought this characterization from Hannah Rosen from 2015 was apropos. It comes from an article she wrote in The Atlantic entitled, The Tricks People Use to Avoid Debate. And she writes the following, quote, A proper argument takes intellectual vigor, nimbleness, and sustained attention. If carried on long enough, it can push both parties to a deeper level of understanding. Oxford debaters hack away at each other for something like two hours. Socrates could sometimes go on for weeks. But who has that kind of time anymore? Better to just shut things down quickly, using one of a new array of strategies. She continues, quote, Want to avoid a debate? Just tell your opponent to check their privilege. Or tell your opponent they're slut-shaming, or victim-blaming, or racist, or sexist, or homophobic, or transphobic, or Islamophobic, or some other term conveying that you are simply too outraged by the argument to actually engage in it. Or, on the other side, accuse that person of being the PC thought police and then snap your laptop shut smugly. End quote. Now again, I'm not suggesting those characteristics don't exist, but within the context of trying to shut down a debate, sometimes we defer to those labels too quickly. Putting people on the defensive with labels just seems to be the strategy, strategy du jour. Another current trend in debate is to finish your assertion with the phrase, and it's not even close. Translation? If you think it's a debate, then you must be a moron. According to a Pew Research study from 2014, the number of people living in the United States holding moderate viewpoints is shrinking. 
thereby decreasing the number of people who actually are able to bridge the extreme sides of any argument. And though that research was from the United States, I think it's applicable in so many countries around the world, including Canada, where I live. Being moderate or seeing both sides of an issue now has you vilified in 360 degrees. You get support from nowhere. Maybe people are just finding it more difficult to separate the idea of someone disagreeing with them and someone attacking them personally. Or maybe we conflate the two, so we therefore think it must be true of that other person. If I can swiftly connect the idea that if you think this, you are uninformed or naive or even worse, you're a bad person, then I can undercut your position. Maybe the issue is how we react. One of my favorite Stephen Covey quotes of all time is this, quote, We judge ourselves by our intent, but we judge others by their actions, end quote. Now, this is why when my son was in middle school, I had to forbid him from starting any sentence with the words, I was just. There was this habit forming where our interactions would consistently go down that path. You know, a conflict would arise, a small disagreement, whatever, and the I was just would just keep flowing from him. Those words alone reveal that the person believes they were just innocently asking a question or making a point or doing something, and you, in your response, were the one that overreacted, right? So it'd be something like, oh, I was just trying to take out the garbage, Dad, and you got all mad at me, or something like that. I was just immediately minimizes your role and disproportionately places the blame for the conflict on the other person. Faculty meetings can go that way too, can't they? I mean, if faculty meeting turns tense and and someone sort of turns to another person in, in the meeting and sort of says under their breath, you know, I was just trying to ask a question and the principal got all bent out of shape and angry with me. Did she? Or was it also true that maybe you weren't aware of how you were coming across. Look, we all aren't aware of how we come across because very little of what we communicate is actually through our words. I mean, how many of you have ever had a significant other utter the words, I'm fine, and you knew they were not fine? (laughs) Everyone has had that experience. I mean, how did you know they weren't fine? It was their body language. It was their paralinguistic patterns. And it was other nonverbal communication. We don't get that online. Maybe that's the key to returning to the debate of ideas, or or at least one of them. Maybe we all, and again, I'm including myself in this, need to become more aware of how we react to those who disagree with us. Maybe we need to focus on the discussion or the debate itself rather than being focused on winning or trying to create a gotcha moment. Maybe when debating, we should avoid thinking, I'm going to change this person's mind and shift toward, I'm going to express my viewpoint without hyperbole and in as clear a manner as possible. Maybe when it turns out we are right, that is the time of humility and empathy. No one likes to be wrong. So when it turns out the other person is wrong, then maybe we hold off on the gloating the insults, the mocking, and trying to embarrass that person for holding their position in the first place? No one has a monopoly on being right. 
Now, I was struck by Joe Biden's words in his speech on Saturday evening, when in the middle of the speech, he said two things that really caught my attention. The first was this, quote, It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again, and to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies, end quote. Now, obviously, that was within the political context, but as I was thinking about this idea of where the debate of ideas went, he's right. Lower the temperature. Listen to each other again. Now, I feel like the time to put away the harsh rhetoric was long ago, but hey, now is better than never. He also said this, and I thought this was so simple and yet profound, quote, if we can decide not to cooperate, we can decide to cooperate. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe we have to simply decide that when someone has a different or even an opposing view, that we will hear their ideas and avoid vilifying them or dehumanizing them. Maybe we begin with the premise of let's find where we agree as opposed to let's figure out why you're wrong. All I know is that something has to give. Where we are in debate right now is unsustainable. It seems so many would rather shut down debate than engage in it. Somehow, some way, we have to get back to debating ideas while we preserve our relationships. Otherwise, we all may end up living in an irreversibly fractured society where being right takes priority over getting it right. Joining me today for the interview is Katie White. Katie is an assessment author, speaker, and consultant from Melfort, Saskatchewan. And like Nicole, a few weeks back, Katie is one of my dearest friends and one of my closest colleagues. So I'm excited to have Katie on the show. Katie is also a fellow Canadian. So that's back-to-back weeks with the Canadians. We had Josh last week. We've got Katie this week. Uh, so Canadians everywhere. Uh, she is the author of two books, 2017's Softening the Edges, Assessment Practices that Honor K-12 Teachers and Learners, and 2019's Unlocked, Using Assessment as the Key to Everyday Creativity in the Classroom. Katie is a force when it comes to workshop facilitation. Katie White is actually a verb. My colleagues Mandy Garnet <laughs> and I often talk about When we design workshops, we often talk about using chart paper and our reference is we're going to Katie White the heck out of this workshop. So Katie knows exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) So with all of that, Katie, um, in all seriousness, I want to welcome you to the Tom Shimmer podcast. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. Um, Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about stuff that I really care about. So I'm pretty excited about this conversation. Yeah, I'm excited too. And I, I have just tremendous respect for your perspective, um, your your gifts and talents as a facilitator, uh, and certainly have admired the way that you go about this work. So I'm excited to have you on. And uh, I want to dig right into uh, to assessment and talk first about your journey. You know, you are obviously now an author and an expert in sound assessment practices. You are a sought after speaker. You are sought after workshop facilitator. But of course, like many of us, you you didn't start your career that way. I mean, I always like to remind workshop participants in, in my workshops that 
you know, there was no one who was more steeped in traditional grading than I was in the early 1990s when I began my career. And now I'm at a place where I've done a complete 180 on all of that. So can you share with us two things? First, why assessment? And then also, what is the arc of your assessment journey? So what I know now is that assessment is the center of everything. And you talk about that a lot to Tom, like it's, it's the, it's what drives all decision-making in a classroom context, right? So that's why assessment, but like for me, when I originally got into it, it was, it was the pebble in my shoe when I taught is what I would call it. Um, like for, for 15 years, um, I, I went into teaching with an open heart. I was excited about planning. I was heavy on the engagement and, you know, I Katie whited the heck out of, out of teaching. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so it was, it was a real passion for me, but what, what ended up happening is like three times a year, I had to rein in the joy and, uh, and calculate a grade. And, and that was the first step of, of the sort of disconnect. And then the second part was, was conference time sitting down with families and, and talking about a report card as opposed to the experience. So I'll tell a little story. Um, about 12 years into teaching, I, I taught a four or five combined classroom for one year. I just had this weird teaching assignment. And it was, it's like one of my favorite years that I think of, um, you know, we started building relationships and cohesion as a class because we were two grades coming together and we did experiential learning and we built sculptures and we did labs outside and it was just the best year. And in the first reporting period and conferences, we had student-led conferences and, um, and this was in a community where I've lived for, for lots of my life. So I knew the families and they would come in and and then we would sit and we would talk about this number. It was just the number. Like, how did we get at the number? Where did, how did you make decisions about the number? And it was just this, this conversation. And I felt like really sad that we couldn't talk about all that other stuff, the magic, right? It just, it was like popping a balloon is how it felt. And so I just think about that year and I think about, about I started to really feel the disconnect between those two things. And then I got this weird job as a vice principal for a year of a six to 12 school. So I changed schools and I and became a vice principal and my director of education at the time came and visited me and he said, uh, here's a stack of old educational leadership magazines from ASCD. Uh, I think you have leadership potential. I think you should read some of this. So I just started reading and, and in the summer I, I took the magazines on a staycation in a hotel while my husband was marking provincial math assessments and my kids were in the pool. And I remember opening up the issue, I've kept it. It's, it was called Data-Driven Decision-Making. And Grant Wiggins and Jay McTie had written an article in there about data-driven decision-making. And I distinctly remember sitting on that fake lawn chair by that fake pool. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like my mind was blown, truly. It was an absolute paradigm shift because it had never occurred to me that assessment could actually drive instructional decision-making. It had never occurred to me. And I was so excited. I could hardly wait to get back to my town so that I could get into my units and, re, and start replanning them. I was just completely enchanted with this idea. And then, um, and then I, I think like a, the next year, I think I got a job as a differentiated instruction facilitator. 
uh, where I was co-teaching with teachers. And so our group would meet regularly and, uh, and we were becoming, like our focus was instruction, but we were obsessed with assessment. We, we started talking about how you couldn't differentiate without pre-assessment or formative assessment or how could you even and so we we, we really shifted and we, we reached out and contacted Grant Wiggins who replied um, <laughs> and we started really working on UBD and I would say like that's why assessment and that's really where the journey that's how the journey got me deep into it I just it once I had that paradigm shift I couldn't let it go and I was just really excited and so my jobs changed and I started having to do some of that work and then the last thing in my journey that I have to mention is our province underwent a massive curriculum redo k-12 to uh, much like BC over the last few years and uh, and we we were forced to reckon with assessment mm -hmm. and so that I was in like I was fully in yeah. And then Tom Shimmer discovered me and then here I am. <laughs> let's for, not, let's not, for let's 10 not, years. Right. Let's not push it, Katie. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting uh. because I, I, you know, I think many of us uh, have a similar experience of thinking about assessment as, you know, early in our careers, thinking about it as a silo. You know, I teach over here mm -hmm. and then I assess you and then I come back to building relationships. I come back to teaching. I come back to engagement. And then there's this thing over here that I have to keep doing a few times a year. And I think, you know, I have a similar story in the sense that once I just, you know, learned about not just assessment as uh, an integral part of instruction, but also from a relationship building perspective, that's when it all kind of clicked for me as well. So in 2017, you wrote soften or you published softening the edges and um, you, you use this metaphor, which I just think is brilliant. Uh, this, the, the hard edges and the soft edges uh, to explore sound assessment practices. So for listeners who might not be familiar with uh, that metaphor and sort of the, the general content of the book or haven't read the book, can you draw the contrast for us between a hard edge and a soft edge in assessment? Okay, so, um, so the way that I think about it is no assessment practice in and of itself has a hard or a soft edge. Um, so, you know, whether we're talking about pre-assessment or self-assessment or summative assessment or reporting, any of those things, they can have either a hard or a soft edge. So what I mean by that, um, the edge is, or the metaphor refers to the idea that, um, you know, the foundation, the foundational understanding of how to do something like assessment is solid. We've got lots of research. We, we know lots of things. But sometimes when I'm working with teachers, I notice that they, you know, if I even say the word assessment, it's almost like I compare it to like a paper cut where you get, you get that cut and you just, you're like, oh, that's horrible. And then you forget about it. And then you squeeze a line for a margarita and then it, and then you feel it again. And you're like, oh, that's horrible. And it's just this sort of recursive pain that, you know, it doesn't linger. We mostly do our jobs and then, and then we inter interface with assessment and it, it's painful for some reason. And so I started to think about the idea of softening the edges like a carpenter, you know, would sand a coffee table and get the splinters off or, you know, you add sugar to vinegar and get a nice sauce. And it, it's just taking something and uh, thinking about how you can adjust it slightly so that when people interact with it, it's, it's not like a paper cut. And so yeah. when we go back to the idea that every assessment practice can have a harder soft edge, we have to start thinking about things like, um, 
like needs that people have. So usually, um, you know, when you when you give kids an assessment experience, um, you're serving an intellectual need. You're trying to build their knowledge. You're assessing their knowledge. You're trying to figure out where to move, and 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 that's all makes sense in an educational setting. That's our job. But if we neglect to think about the social health of kids, the emotional health, even their physical health, like getting them to write for extended periods where your like spine hurts from doing that, all of those things about being yeah. uh, a human, if, if we neglect those other parts of ourselves, we can end up with a hard edge. And so mm -hmm. the book is about how to take a practice mm -hmm and think about it through the intellectual lens, of course, but then also the social, emotional, physical lenses right. so that it lands on kids and on teachers in a healthy and humane way. Yeah, so can you maybe, um, just as a follow-up, think about a, um, an assessment practice that has uh, a hard edge that you could then soften. So think about a traditional assessment practice that, that might you know, traditionally feel or be executed or implemented as a hard edge, but because of the teacher's sort of attention, it's it's now a soft edge. Any examples you could share? Well, for me, my big one is pre-assessment because that's where we started in that differentiated instruction group. So we started really investigating pre-assessment because we knew it was important for making decisions. Right. And, um, and there's a couple of ways to do pre-assessment. And I think that's what makes it a little bit challenging or gets us those hard edges. Like there's the mm -hmm. diagnostic pre-assessment where we assess those precursor skills, or there's the kind of pre-assessment that looks an awful lot like the summative, right? right. And so we were giving kids those kinds of pre-assessments because that's mm -hmm. what we thought a pre-assessment was. Mm -hmm. And what we, what we started noticing with kids is they would write it and their confidence would like visibly plummet. Yeah. like visibly. <laughs> yeah. The questions were too hard. There were too many of them. They were discouraged. They started making excuses to sharpen their pencils and mm -hmm. go to the washroom and do all those things that are that we do to, to distract ourselves. And so we started to question that hard edge, right? Yeah. Um, what could we do with pre-assessment to get the intellectual information that we needed to serve that whole part? What, at, what were the social emotional issues? Yeah. And confidence, of course, was the big one. Mm -hmm. And so we started to realize to soften the edge, we were going to have to really frame the pre-assessment in a way that kids understood how it was going to be used. And then we also mm -hmm. had to make sure that we actually used it that way immediately. So kids right. felt the impact of that. So really it was in how we presented it. And we also took off questions that were way too hard mm -hmm. like you know there's no point giving kids five questions when they don't give you anything for all five all, all that does right. is crush crush their right. belief in themselves so that's that's an example yeah, yeah. pre-assessment is such an interesting concept because you're right for for so many years pre-assessment was almost you know here's an advanced version of the stuff we haven't taught you yet and then we you know why it took us so long to figure out why kids were losing confidence and doing poorly on the on the, the assessments of, of things they haven't been taught uh, versus, you know, I mean, versus this idea that um, here's an assessment for readiness, right? So not every pre-assessment, yeah. like a pre-test is a form of pre-assessment, but not every pre-assessment has to be a pre-test. And the idea of using it, I love your reference to the idea of using it because is it just a, an assessment that we figure out who has the background knowledge and who doesn't, or are we actually going to use that instructionally? And I think that's really an important aspect that you highlight around pre-assessment, which I think is is a, 
is a is a is a really good place for people to start thinking about in terms of pre-assessment for sure. Well, and now, and I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and then the the other way that sometimes pre-assessment is is misused or used and then creates a hard edge. I guess yeah. that's how I would like to say it is when we're just collecting data to show growth. So we right. we want the kids to actually really do badly mm -hmm. because we need to prove that that what we've done in the in the meantime is grown them. Right. And I think right. we start when we started to know that we were setting goals and trying to, you know, there was actually some of that hokey stuff going on. Like let's get the mm -hmm. lowest scores possible so that there, it's, you know, right. we can do nothing but grow from there. Um, right. I think I think we lost the thread on what a pre-assessment is yeah. supposed to do. Totally. I mean, I, I've been saying for years in workshop, the easiest way to show growth is tank the pretest. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, yeah. And then you'll show oh. tremendous growth, but that's not really a, a useful a way to go about assessment for sure. Right. So one more follow up to this. Um, okay. How, what advice, like how as a teacher would I know, what should I keep in mind to make sure that I'm not inadvertently creating a hard edge? So I may think I'm softening the edge, but there may be things that I do that inadvertently create a hard edge in assessment. It's it's almost like action research, I think, is our is our big option here. So um, what I do in workshops with people around this is I actually invite them to attend to their emotional responses to assessment experiences and to watch kids' emotional because emotion indicates. Right. Um, you know, either a need is being filled or it's not. And so um, the example I always give is, is I used to take home, um, I'm an English language arts teacher, and I take home piles and piles of assessment, right? And then I've got my kids home at night, and I have to sit down and look at this pile. And I just feel this tension, this anger and frustration at my, my personal time being violated by this um, assessment thing that I have to do. So what I invite people to do is, is make a note of that somewhere. That's, that's an indication of a hard edge. So there's something about the balance between home and school and the need for, for timely and effective yeah. feedback, but also, you know, so there's a way to win that. There's a way to soften that. We just have to investigate and identify it first. So watch kids if they're stuffing their tests in their desks or throwing them in the garbage, or if they're comparing with each other their scores and you know, you can see some kids feeling very diminished by that. I mean, those are all indicators of hard edges that we have to attend to. So just be observant, I think, yeah. is what I'm inviting people to do. Yeah, that emotional side of assessment is such an important part to pay attention to is it's a very human experience and not just that clinical exercise and number crunching, right? Right. Um, page 82 of the book, you talk about committing to the to the process, right? So you talk about the idea that so often formative assessment, even in 2020, is often viewed as a distraction, you know, from teaching. And, you know, Tom, you know, Tom or Katie, if I'm always assessing, when am I teaching those types of mindsets? So how do we, or how have you, let's talk about, you know, how you have gone about trying to help teachers understand that assessment is an integral part of the instructional process and not a distraction from teaching. So how, what, are, what are some ways that we can begin to engineer that conversation and help people see that? So I start with the definition of, of assessment, um, simplifying it as much as I can, which is simply clarifying or articulating our learning goals, capturing present state, Mm -hmm. looking at the difference and responding like that's what assessment is yeah. so when we assess kids we're trying to uncover their thinking lots of it's happening inside their heads we're trying to bring it out 
so that we can analyze it for current state and then make some decisions. So that's part of it is redefining assessment. I think it's uh -huh. gotten very convoluted, uh -huh. but like the number one way to um, share the impact of formative assessment, I think is by having student artifacts in front of us. I just think it's the very best way because when we bring student work into the room and we start to analyze it for strengths and needs and we start to notice, um, you know, teachers are passionate and caring human beings and they wanna do what's right and what's best by kids. And so when I'm looking at, at uh, a student's work and I see that there's something missing or they hold a need, I can't ignore that anymore. Like it's, it's, it's out of the box now, I, I can't put it back in. And so um, once we start looking at student work, for, you know, that we collect from an, from an assessment experience, then we can start to say, okay, so who needs what? And then how can I, can I do that through feedback or practice or regrouping and explicit teaching? Like, what does that look like? So I feel like that's a great place to start because it's just, it's hard to ignore that. But then I feel like the second part is, um, where lots of us start is we look at those learning goals and we break them into targets, which everyone in the world is doing and all of that gorgeous work. But um, but then there's a point I feel like where we also can have the conversation of like, so let's look at those targets and those skills that we need to develop. Let's predict based on our experience and what we know about kids this age and our subject area, let's predict where they're gonna have the greatest challenge. So we put stars next to all of those things. Now, I mean, it becomes very, I mean, the conversation is, so if we know this is gonna be a problem, wouldn't it be better to catch that earlier in the cycle than after a summative event? Like it's really about saving you time as a teacher. And I feel like that conversation of predicting needs and then planning to catch them early is another way to come at it. It's interesting when you think about that, just starting with that latter point, the idea that it's almost a trade-off in terms of your minutes, right? It's it's investing yeah. in the work ahead of time so that you're not spending as much time on the back end. So things that are always front end loaded are, I guess, perceived to be risky because you don't see the payoff until after the fact, right? I love the idea of, of teaching through student exemplars and samples because you know, one of the things that I know you talk a lot about, and, and we all do, which is that an assessment isn't formative unless it's used formatively. And so showing the utility of the idea of, of looking at strengths and that which needs strengthening, I think that sort of learn by doing idea of, of putting student work in front of, of teachers and having them see that there is a connection to the instructional decisions. I just think that's really, really wise. Um, in you also talk a lot about self-assessment and metacognition in the book. And I think, you know, again, we know that those are two aspects of assessment that are almost universally accepted in theory. I think there, there aren't many people now that don't understand how critical it is to have students as self-assessors and the idea that I am thinking about my own learning or my thinking through a metacognitive experience. But we know that understanding it in theory and putting it into practice in your classroom are often two different things. So what strategies or advice or suggestions do you have for teachers who are trying to bring more self-assessment uh, to their classroom or more metacognitive opportunities for students. Like what advice do you have for teachers? Like where should they begin? How, how can they begin to fold more of that into their classroom practices if they don't have a lot of experience doing so already? Well, 
I just sent in a draft for a new book on this very topic. So I'll share. So I've had okay. a chance to really hone in my thinking on this one. Plus, right. I just I just adjusted some of this stuff and I'm teaching awesome. ELA 10 and 20. And I just this morning adjusted a self-assessment Perfect. tool. Uh, to, so so we are, I'm ready. We are getting ready. A, a preview to the new masterpiece from Katie White. So let's do Ta-da. it. We'll see. There we go. Okay. So the first, the first thing that um, that I would recommend is is um, documentation. So um, it's really, really tough for kids to reflect on decisions that they've made, which is what a self assessment really needs to be, um, if they don't have something to look at, right? So having them collect work in a portfolio or a data notebook or um, having them, you know, having a video that they can look at or a series of photographs, just giving them something, it, it, especially with our little people. I mean, their memories are pretty like in this moment. And so mm. to say, hey, remember two hours ago when, you know, you had the puppet and you punched a kid? It's just nice <laughs> to have something to look at, um, you know, to analyze, right? And then, right. and then, and then the second part is, is having a process for analysis um, that the kids can undergo that's, that's a little bit different than what I think we would traditionally say. So how do you think you did is what you, we usually ask. How do you, mm. how do you think this went? Um, it's too, that's too nebulous for kids. So, so having them look at two different samples of work and say, you know, how did one change from the other one? Or what decisions did you make differently? Or let's look at the introduction, which, which introduction do you think was most effective? I just feel like those, the analysis combined with a really strong set of prompts or ways to think about their work, they can look at work or they can look at data either, mm-hmm. um, really, really helps them. And then emerging from that, of course, then is, is goal setting. And so I feel like um, one of the, the key things that I would say to people around goal setting with kids, because again, this traditionally goes badly, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to be neater. Or even when I asked my high school kids the very first round, they said, said well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and read every day. Well, okay. So, so what we want to get at is really short-term, tight goals where kids can see a turnaround. They can make a decision and apply it within 24 hours. So um, really being clear about like specifically what are you going to try and let's try it tomorrow and then let's see what results you get. I think that sort of uh, recursive part is, is really important. And then the last thing I would say, well, I actually have two things, but the last thing I would say, the last big thing is, um, is let it be organic, like be okay with an organic self-assessment process. Like it doesn't have to be, here's a big template and fill it out and fill out your goals. And ugh, it's so cumbersome for kids sometimes. So recognizing, I think, self-assessment in the, through the course of a daily um, teaching experience is super helpful. Like, did you notice how, when you took the puppet from your friend, they got Mm -hmm. upset? What might you do differently, right? That is self-assessment and it's very organic and it can happen through the course um, of of a regular class. And then the last thing I want to talk about, because this is the most controversial part of my book, I feel like, is the idea of privacy. Um, I feel like some kids are are a little bit afraid of self-assessment because it inadvertently becomes kind of public. Like I'm working in a group of people or I have to share my data with others or I'm having a conversation with the teacher and there's two other kids standing there. And I feel like it's just self-assessment. I mean, for adults is vulnerable work. We're talking about ourselves and our decisions. And, um, and so I just want to throw a little, um, a little statement out there that just we have to attend to the privacy of kids yeah. and let them 
retain their dignity while taking right. risks and making mistakes. I think that's part of that culture. Yeah, that is a uh, such a such a great point because it it does in a self assessment and even more so in a peer assessment situation, it is you are vulnerable, and if if the context doesn't support, like if we don't have a norm of working together, if we don't have a norm of support where I'm not going to be laughed at or people aren't going to make fun of me, if we don't have those things in place where you know, there's, there's this attention to the collective versus, you know, I've, I've often said to people, if grades are competitive in your classroom, then students are going to have no interest in peer assessment or helping one another yeah. because they're, they're, they're not going to want to help you gain an advantage over them. So that context really matters in the safety of that exercise, Katie, I think is such a, a brilliant point to make about, about that self-assessment because it is somewhat public and, and kids do feel vulnerable and even adults feel vulnerable, as you said. So I think that's really important. Again, like, you know, everything around hard and soft edges, you know, it's, it's always attending to the emotional side of the experience and not just mm -hmm. the clinical side of the experience. And I, I also love the idea that it not always be such an epic monumental event, but it, but it's more a natural part of what we do on a daily basis. So I think that's, that's, um, that's really, really wise advice for, for people thinking about how to get, get themselves moving in that direction. I want to shift now to talk a little bit about creativity because of course, in, in the book unlocked, you assert that, creativity is is you know is supported by assessment or assessment is the key to everyday creativity so from your perspective what are some of the i guess biggest misunderstandings that teachers have or or people in general what are some of the big, biggest misunderstandings people have from your perspective about creativity when you hear creativity what are people some people still not understanding completely so much <laughs> <laughs> so many of the things. The floor is yours, um, Katie. Okay. Uh, well, I think first of all, uh, creativity feels big to people, right? So if I'm going to invest in a creative process, this is going to be time consuming. Ugh, it's going to be so messy. It's going to be chaotic in my room. Uh, you know, the rules are going to go out the window. The kids are going to be able to do whatever they want. I think it's, it's this, um, you know, this notion of the creative process being a giant thing. And it is, it is a giant thing in terms of thinking and it's very recursive and it gets us really deeper and deeper into um, goals and what we want, but it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be that big. There's, um, you know, the literature talks about big, big C creativity and little C creativity. A big C creativity is what like professional inventors and people who are doing this work do. And it's, you know, it's huge, but that's not what we're doing in classrooms. We're doing little C, like in this moment, what are the five questions you have and what are ways we can answer that? Or here's some materials, what might you do with that? It's, we can really, we can tighten up, I guess, the, the scope of something like that. The other, and another one is uh, people think that um, either you're creative or you're not. That's, mm -hmm. I mean, and, and, and even when I say to people, well, do you really think that's true? They'll be like, no, okay, maybe, maybe, but, but I can't draw anything but a stick person or, you know, um, math's my thing. I can't, I'm not creative at all. I hear that from people all the time. And um, creativity is a, it's a set of skills that we can develop. That creative thinking is a, is a muscle that you have to work. 
And, um, and I know everyone's creative. Um, you know, when people say I can't do art, I always say, well, you didn't have the right art teacher. Like, you can, yes, you can. Yeah. Um, you just need someone to help you with the process. Yeah. Um, so that's another big one. And then I think that um, a lot of people feel discouraged by creativity or trying creativity, whatever that is, when they don't get good results right away. It's like um, kids who think they can write a draft and that's going to be publishable. It's, it, you know, the right. creative process process takes time it's it's rigorous you have to make lots and lots of mistakes and then you get one one great idea and I feel like um, having teachers and students be comfortable with that ambiguity and that failure takes mm -hmm. a real cultural shift in a classroom and so so we have to do some work around that right yeah. um, and then and then I would say one more thing because I have to make a case for those little little people in classrooms who don't get to do the creative stuff because they're not done the other stuff. Like creativity isn't an afterthought. And it's not, you know, when you think of blooms, it's not like, uh, like creativity is at the top, but that doesn't mean we have to go through each of those other stages to get to it. Sometimes through creativity, we can get to asking questions about knowledge and analyzing things. So so let's not withhold creativity from kids um, because they don't have the rest of their work done. I just feel mm -hmm. so sad for those little people because that's right. that's joy, right? They need a chance to do that kind of thing. So is the first step broadening our definition of what we mean when we say creativity or or creative thinking? Is that is that the first? Because I know that you know over a decade ago when we were going through some of the changes in our curriculum here in BC, people said the same thing. Oh, you know, I, I can't assess, I can't teach creativity because I'm not an art teacher. And they have such a narrow view that teaching creativity means producing something that is aesthetically pleasing as opposed to yeah. broadening the definition. So is that the first step for us all is to to broaden our understanding of, of the definition or what what is actually creative? Because I think about teachers who on a daily basis are creative in helping students grasp concepts and dig deeper in inquiry where the students weren't already. So a teacher might think they're not creative, but in the professional setting, they're incredibly creative in their work. So is that mm -hmm. is that a fair thing to start with? Is that if we all collectively broadened our definition of that? Definitely. Um, you know, I, I even have people say to me, well, Katie, are you do, still doing art or are you playing music? Because I'm a very creative person. And I'll say, mm -hmm. no, I, I'm not finding that I have a lot of time for that. But I do feel like I'm exercising my creativity through designing a session for teachers or thinking mm -hmm. about how to write something for a newsletter. So um, creativity comes in all shapes and sizes. And, and I think one of the most helpful definitions for me or ways to think about it is, is creativity is um, solving problems. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's visual problems in visual art, right? It's, it's the problem of, of, um, you know, dramatic communication in, in drama, but in math, it's like looking at a complex problem and trying to figure out how you might solve it. And Sir Ken Robinson, who I love and adore, um, reminds us that creativity doesn't have to be new to the, it doesn't have to be a new to the world. It can be new to the, to the person. So you can have kids who come up with two creative solutions that look the same, but the creative process still existed because right. it's about the thinking and the, and the, mm -hmm. you know, the trying ideas on. And, and, and so, um, so I think also we have to lower our expectations in terms of, well, you came up with something that looked a little bit like the kid over here. 
that's how creativity works. We build off each other. We, my mom uses the term riff. We're always riffing off each other, trying to mm -hmm. figure out what mm -hmm. someone's doing and then we build on it. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you, Tom. I think that's a good first step. It's interesting when, when you say that, because like you could have a teacher who has, you know, 120 students on their roster. How new to the world is everything, you know, by the 60th student, you're going to probably see that repetitiveness in terms of what the student's doing. So I love that idea of new to the individual. It's a new way of thinking for me. It also makes me think about, you know, when we talk about 21st century competencies, the way you're talking about creativity, you're almost bringing together creativity and critical thinking as yeah. instead of thinking them, thinking of these competencies as silos, uh, they really are interrelated. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how we bring all of those 21st century competencies together and, and how that kind of flows? So it's funny that you mentioned that because that's how my work has actually really evolved in BC specifically around those competencies is I started talking about creativity. I wrote a book about creativity, but the I've actually changed my language to, to deep thinking, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and problem solving because um, you know, in, in the book, I talk about four stages and, and the stage names are of my own creation to some degree, although other people suggested them, but like, um, but in the literature, no matter where you read, there's, there's several stages of creativity. So we start with exploration, we move on to elaboration, yeah. then some form of expression or sharing, and then a deep reflection and connection to the next task. That's the mm -hmm. cycle. Well, right. that cycle serves critical thinking too, right? Like it's, let's talk about what we're seeing and what do we notice? And then let's analyze the similarities to something else. And so each, each of those competencies require that sort of leveling up of thinking mm -hmm. and thinking and getting deeper and deeper into something. And I think that's the connection is, mm -hmm. is almost the idea of slowing down um, you know, the assign, assess, assign, assess cycle and actually saying, you know, how can we invite kids into thinking or creating mm -hmm. or communicating? Mm -hmm. How can we get them to elaborate on their ideas? How can we get them ready to share with somebody? And how can we get them to do some of that reflection? I think it applies yeah. to all of those competencies. It's really right. how we develop them. Right. It's um, <laughs> one of the challenges, of course, with creativity is, as you mentioned, time. Right. So yeah. the idea that I want to let an idea or a thought or a potential solution incubate, but have it done by Monday, you know, it's that, it's that, it's that, it's that rushing. Uh, and, and that may be one of the biggest challenges teachers face is, is allowing the space and the time for students to think with creative intent and beginning to sort of sort of manifest their ideas in in the time it takes and not not being rushed. So, assessment is the key to everyday creativity you say. How so? Yeah, that's a big statement. So, um so when you think about those four stages, um, ex expression, elaboration, uh, no, sorry, exploration, elaboration, expression and reflection response, um I guess what I'm contending is that the only way that we can get kids to dig deeper into their work is through assessment. Because if we go back to that definition that I mentioned before, it's like, where am I trying to go and what's my current state? Mm -hmm. And um, and I always think of like, uh, I teach evening or I used to teach evening art classes for, for many, many years. And I would get kids who would come up to me with their canvas and they would say, am I done? Am I done? Is this good? 
and I'd look at it and I would see like um, the same picture that they painted yesterday, right? And so I have that moment, I call it sort of that pivotal moment as a teacher and we've all had it where kids come to us and give us more of the same and we can either say, yeah, that fits the criteria, so sure, hand it in, which is what sometimes we do, or we can say, you know what, no, <laughs> you've done this already, you're really great at that, so let's, let's try something different, and the only way you're going to get kids to move from that exploration, which is what I think that first draft is, to that elaboration is to say, let's, let's set a new goal, let's think about what we're, you know, is there a way that we might create a background that, that isn't always brown, let's think about other colors, other textures, here's some new materials, let's see what you might do, and so it's, it's almost asking another question, or posing another problem, and then sending them back, and saying, let's see if you can resolve this, and I, <clears throat> and because I'm using assessment in that, in that very open-ended definition, I just don't think there's another way to get kids to get back into their work. And, and we call it different things. We call it revision in English language arts, right? Or sketching in, in art, all of those sort of, that's your first kick at it, let's, let's dig back in. Um, and, and I think we wanna do that in math and I think we wanna do that in science, like that's great. Is there another way that you might've solved that, that exact same problem? Head back and see if you can come up with another solution. That's how we get kids to dig in. So that's why I say creativity, uh, and assessment go hand in hand. And then I talk really explicitly about, I call it dialogue with self and dialogue with others. So dialogue uh, with others is feedback, of course, and dialogue with self is self-assessment, but really working alongside other people to push ourselves to do different, to try different. Um, we might not have strategies in our brains at this moment, but if I talk to someone else and they said they tried something else, then maybe I'm gonna try that on my piece. And so it's that whole sort of assess set a new goal, try, reflect, assess, you know, that cycle that really drives the creative process. Yeah, it, it just reiterates the notion of assessment as the engine or the center of so much that drives, you know, it's not always the most glamorous part of our jobs and it isn't necessarily the stuff that makes the headlines, but it certainly is that, uh, that engine that drives so many of the different, you know, processes that we want to see happen in our classrooms and the way that we can engineer further conversations about thinking creatively and critically and all of that. So I, I love that. And, and again, for, for, for some listeners or, or others, um, the concept of, of linking assessment and creativity may be foreign, you know, they're, they're, they may feel that there's that disconnect, but I think that, you know, you, what the case you make in the book is, is just, uh, irrefutable in terms of how assessment can drive that uh, creative process. So uh, I love that. So I, you know, I hope, I hope listeners check out both books because uh, they they really are uh, excellent, excellent reads. Um, I want to finish up with uh, a question about, I know like myself, you've been working with a lot of schools remotely. You've been working with schools that are there, you know, schools across North America and around the world are in uh, different situations. Many are still in full remote learning situations. Some schools are in kind of hybrid situations. Some are back in, in different iterations of being back face-to-face -face and whatever that looks like. So um, let's talk about remote learning or hybrid learning to finish up. Uh, because of your work and you've been working with so many of these schools, what assessment advice are you giving to teachers right now uh, or do you have for teachers, like what, what is some of the advice you're giving about how to navigate this sort of 2021 school year? How, how are, what's some of the advice you're giving to people about from an assessment perspective on, on navigating the unknown about what this school year could look like? 
Well, I have to say that one of the best things I ever did was take a teaching contract because there is just nothing that brings this stuff home more than more than teaching yeah. asynchronously in a mm -hmm. in an online environment. So, so my advice has become like quite fine tuned. Um, so I think I, I I've 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 adopted Brené Brown saying clear is kind, and I and I say it to myself and I say it to others all the time. Right, that at this time. Um, we have to be clear about some things and we have to be clear ourselves and then also with the students we serve. And I feel like that clarity um, brings comfort mm -hmm. um, to kids. I mean, we talk about routines, but I, I, I honestly, we just need clarity. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's nothing that makes us feel worse than not knowing what's mm -hmm. happening. And that's why we all feel crazy right now. So I talk lots about prioritizing goals. I mean, I, I think I focus on that because I had to reckon um, with that myself in my own practice. I have kids. I designed a course the best I could and the kids aren't going to finish it. They're just not going to finish it. They don't have enough right. time. It's a quarterly system where it's crazy. So I had to do this exact same thing in my practice. Like what has to stay? What, what does every kid need? And what are some things where I can flex that a little bit? Uh -huh. And, um, and so I talk lots about prioritization and the other side of prioritization, of course, I talk about um, the other side of that coin, which is if we prioritize, then we have to commit to feedback, to formative assessment, to practice, to time for kids to recover. So if we're going to get kids to engage in that, again, that deep learning cycle, we have to reduce the amount that we're going to do. Otherwise, sure. I mean, like I say, yeah, we could do them all. We could do all the assignments and all the competencies and all the outcomes and we can do it all. But um, it's very shallow. 50% of our kids won't learn a thing and mm -hmm. we're going to burn ourselves out. So we have to be, we have right. to be true to that. That's, that's a big one. And then the other one is really talking a lot about um, success criteria, but in a more, um, I guess, open way, like it, I use the phrase and lots of people use the phrase, this means that. And so really helping kids understand exactly what we mean by a skill that we're trying to develop. Mm -hmm. And then being super clear with kids using that exact same list of descriptors when we give kids feedback, when they're setting goals, they're tracking their own progress. So just being super clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then also talking about two-way feedback. I talk about that a lot. Right. Uh, because I get humble pie every day from the kids, <laughs> the kids I'm teaching. <laughs> I got a kid today say, or yesterday sent me a, a, a text and say, um, okay, so you have two different persuasive essays. Like, are you saying we have to do both of those? And I was like, okay, yes. I, so is this taking you a long time or it, it's that whole discussion. I think mm -hmm. about pacing and managing the workload with everything else that's happening. I think we have to there has to be a back and forth to that, right? Yeah, for sure. So those you're are just, some of the things. Yeah, yeah, all all really good advice for sure. And I I, I think uh, the highlighting of the idea that while you can prioritize and and reduce the quantity, it's really important that you increase the quality of that yeah. experience. And the idea that you say commit to the the process of formative assessment and feedback, so you can just do less but we're not doing it any better because we're not committed to that. So I love, I love that you highlighted that, that important point and just understanding that we just can't cover everything we would cover in a face-to-face -face 
uh, you know, situation. Some teachers struggled to cover everything in a face-to-face situation. Never mind. We, we, can, we never could, Tom, could right. we? Like we never right. no. could. I, my fractions exactly. unit always mm-hmm. got kind of short shifted right. in June yeah. because yeah. I ran out of time, right? Like it happens. Yeah. So we even had that expression. More intentional. That, in, that expression in the early days of my teaching was you, you always run out of time before you run out of textbook. And uh, <laughs> so, so we're always making those choices and things sure. like that. But I think, um, I think that's, um, that's really, really great advice. So, okay. You know, Katie, I could talk assessment with you all day. Like when I had I Nicole know. on, I mean, we could, we could, we could do hours of this and I know we're going to do this again at some point. Uh, but I want to finish up today with uh, a little bit of fun. As you know, I finish up every interview with some fun questions. Uh, I'm going to ask you a few lighthearted questions uh, that uh, you don't know are coming. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Um, But this is, I think, a good way for listeners to get to know you a little bit on a personal level. So I have five questions for you, and then we'll finish up with a question about success. So here's the first one. On a scale of one to 10, with one being not at all and 10 being off the charts, how strict were your parents when you were growing up? Okay, that's a new one, Tom Shimmer. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, I think it depends on the parent we're talking about, but... um, Well, you're going to have to synthesize it into an overall grade. (laughs) Okay, I don't like this holistic approach. I think maybe um, seven, seven to eight. I think when I was a teenager, my dad was pretty strict. (laughs) He was quite frustrated with me. Um, so yeah, I, I, my, my parents were not lenient, but they also, I mean, I, I always joke, I grew up in a town with, with 250 people and my mom had the dryer going in spring and, and the three of us would just wander around town and get wet in puddles, come home, chuck a pair of pants in the dryer, grab a new pair and head out again. And the town just took care of us. So (laughs) it's kind of like a balance between that sort of free and easy 1970s vibe. But, but as I, as I progressed into my adolescent years, I think things tightened up significantly. Well, that's (laughs) probably very common in many households for sure. All right. Number two, what's the most overrated movie of all time? The movie that everybody loves, but you just don't get it. Oh, I, um, you know, I'm going to make this a slightly different answer. Like I'm disappointed in movies all the time. I actually have started to think that there's something wrong with me um, because I just don't Mm -hmm. enjoy um, lots of pop culture kind of movies. I I don't know. So that's all I would say. There's, there's so many, like, I haven't even watched Gladiator, Tom. What's (laughs) wrong with me? Like, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's it's just it's, so there's no movie that you think about where you saw it and you're like, why was everybody so excited about that? I guess there's many of them, as you're saying. So that's okay. It's okay if, uh, you know, I know okay, I'm putting in, you on the spot. Go ahead. Incep- Inception, but not because it wasn't a great movie. I actually think Inception was probably a great movie for people who are a lot smarter than me, but I struggled <laughs> with the layers. I yeah. couldn't. I needed I needed okay. my kids to explain it to me. So maybe that's the one. I it, it wasn't bad. It's just yeah. I don't know that I was smart enough to take it. <laughs> well, and overrated doesn't have to mean it was bad. It just means it's overrated, right? Yeah. I mean, it's some so like, okay, let's move yeah. on. We'll move on to question three. <laughs> Here's a, a an either or choice. Han Solo 
or Indiana Jones? Oh my word. Oh, I, well, I got to go with Indiana Jones. Um, okay. Explain. Oh, but that's tough. Like, well, because I've watched every Indiana Jones movie like a hundred times. I mm. love, there's something about that series that just, you know, I'll have a Saturday where I'm just feeling like I need an Indiana Jones movie and I watch it. And I, I feel like the, you know, he's just a rascal and I like the guy and he's, you know, he's smart and he's brave. And I, I, I like that. And I feel like Han Solo could have been that, except like his part was too small. He didn't mm. get to fully live out his character because there were so many other characters. So, yeah. so yeah, I got to go with Indiana Jones. Okay. All right. Indiana Jones. It is. Okay. Number four, a little, little Canadiana here uh, for listeners. What is your favorite um and let's let's talk maybe unknown maybe not you know popular outside of canada but what's your favorite unknown canadian band or singer that our american listeners or international listeners definitely have to start listening to that they may not know about so recommendation great canadian band or singer that listeners in the united states or overseas should really start listening to well, okay. So my first, my first thought is Andy Schaff and he's from Southern Saskatchewan and he is wonderful. Um, like look him up, Spotify, that guy. Uh, his music is quirky and awesome, but President Obama actually tweeted about him in his list of music. So oh. like, I think he's kind of blown up because of that. Not because Katie White said it, but because- um, <laughs> Well, now he's definitely gonna blow up. <laughs> like, but um, but he he's, you know, up until then was relatively unknown and I'm super curious how that even happened. So he's mm -hmm. one guy um, and my kids love him and he's just awesome. Um, and then like a bit old, I got to go old school with you, Tom, and you'll relate to this. I really love Wide Mouth Mason. Mm. Uh, they were a band also from Saskatchewan, um, really bluesy, jazzy rock, uh, had some popular songs a number of years ago, but um, you know, Sean Vareau, the lead, lead singer is still messing around. His Instagram account is crazy. He's so mm -hmm. musical. And so I feel like that's a great band. And then I have to sneak in the Northern Pikes who are also okay. from Saskatoon. Okay. Uh, they've got some great old songs that you can check out. There's so yeah. many Canadian Absolutely. music is awesome. Yes, it is. Great recommendations there, Katie. Thanks for that. Um, all right. Last one. What is one irresistible thing that is guaranteed to distract you from getting any work done what's that one thing that if you that is guaranteed to distract you if you're writing or you're preparing or you're whatever you're trying to get done it for sure will take you away from doing that my answer is disappointing <laughs> it's it's email notifications truthfully it is. And you know what? I know, I know that this is a ridiculous thing and I'm supposed to turn those off, but I will tell you, I can be working and just be in flow. I'm doing so good. And then I, you know, and it's only my iPad that has the signal in the sound and I'll be like, Whoop. all of a sudden I have an email and I cannot leave it alone. So that's, that's the truth of it. That's about the only thing that interrupts me. So not TikTok, not, uh, no, nothing like that. Okay. All right. So one final question, Katie, and as listeners know, I ask this question of everyone who comes on the podcast that I interview and, and it has to do with success. 
one of the things that I'm going to be eventually exploring through the podcast is just this idea of success and happiness and, and uh, in whatever walk of life you are in. So the question I ask everyone is, and I'm sure you've heard it, uh, but the question is, if you were stopped on the street, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? You know, in my workshops, sometimes I remind people that the, the conversation is the destination or the journey is the destination and that our fixation on this sort of endpoint success, right, can sometimes take us away from the present moment. And so, like, I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm alone in my house during the COVID <laughs> thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I just really think that life is, is a whole bunch of present moments strung together, right, into this, into this life. And I feel like, it, you know, success for me is staying present, mm -hmm. um, not obsessing about the future or the past or things outside of me. And I think that that's what my daily work is, to be curious and to, if I'm with people, I'm really with people. Um, you know, my dad used to have a saying, um, my dad is definitely one of my heroes, and he, he used to say that um, when I talk to people, I want them to feel better after talking to me than they did before I talked to them. And, I, yeah. and it's a, he had a real servant leadership perspective, and I think I've very much internalized that. So success to me is, is helping people feel better about whatever it is that matters to them right now. And, mm -hmm. and then that's like right from my professional life to my personal life. I just, I wanna be present and I'm not always uh, successful in that even. Uh, that's a real struggle for me, um, but I just think that's what success is. It's that yeah. this moment is a gift and that I see it as that and I treat yeah. it as that. Yeah, it's, I, I, being present is, is never a bad thing. Uh, that's for yeah. sure. Um, Katie, th look, this this was great. Um, like I said, I could I could talk assessment with you all day, uh, and I know that uh, we will do this again. I I really appreciate you joining me today, uh, listeners. I want to encourage you to follow Katie's work on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Katie White four two six. She also blogs regularly at the uh, website allthingsassessment.info, where all of us uh, post our blog posts occasionally. That's where you can find many of Katie's blogs. Katie is also the co-moderator of the All Things Assessment chat. So that's hashtag AT Assessment. And that chat happens every other Tuesday on Twitter at six o'clock Pacific, nine o'clock Eastern time. Uh, so if you're interested in joining many of us on that Twitter chat to talk assessment, Katie also moderates that. Katie, anywhere else people can follow your work at all? Um, any other platforms or anything like that? Well, I've got a website, kwhiteconsulting.com, okay. um, and there's more than one Katie White Consulting, so you got to type in education if you're doing a Google search, and you'll find <laughs> me. Um, and I also have started an, a professional Instagram account called okay. Soft Edged, at Soft Edged Learning, um, and I'm trying to, it's almost like a half blog, half Instagram. I try to document my journey as a classroom teacher right now and some of the things mm -hmm. that are happening in education. So that's another place where you can find me. Awesome. So listeners, no, no shortage of ways that you can <laughs> uh, connect with Katie, that's for sure. And I can promise you connecting with Katie's work is worth it. Um, she is just a, a, a force when it comes to assessment. Uh, and an absolute uh, gift to, to teachers in terms of her knowledge and her experience. 
uh, in all the work that she does. So Katie, I, again, I know we'll do this again at some point, but I'm just very uh, grateful that you took the time to join me today. So uh, thanks for being here. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to return to our conversation about rubrics and finish a couple of thoughts I had. You may recall last week when we were addressing the question that I often get, which is, Tom, what's the best type of rubric to use, that we explored the different types of rubrics and their advantages and disadvantages, and we talked about the importance of understanding the strengths and limitations of each format. And I mentioned something last week about rubrics, and that was that the best kinds of rubrics are the ones that describe quality versus prescribe outcome. And I think that's a really important point because one of the things that I've noticed lately in my conversations, and I would say what I mean by lately is in the last couple of years, I've noticed a lot of sort of anti-rubric sentiment, right? This idea that people are now asserting, you know, Tom, I don't really love rubrics because they seem to restrict students' creativity or they seem to put them in a box and I don't want to do that and all of those different ideas. And, and I do understand that to a point, but... I think there are ways around that because, again, let's not lose the plot here. We don't make rubrics just to make rubrics. We make rubrics so that criteria is transparent. So that's the critical part. We want to make sure that everyone, especially the students, understands the criteria for how they're going to be assessed. So sometimes I'll say, well, I should say sometimes, I will always say to people, make sure your rubrics describe quality, not prescribe outcome. And so that part, I think, is within our control. I do understand when people say rubrics are too prescriptive, but that's usually an implementation or a rubric construction issue. Uh, if you are too prescriptive, if you are telling the students specifically what to do as an output, then you probably will restrict their creativity or restrict their opportunity, right? That's the difference between telling somebody their story or the narrative has to begin with a flashback versus saying you have to begin your story with uh, a way of grabbing the reader's attention, right? One describes, uh, you know, and again, I'm not saying these are the most sophisticated criteria, but just to give you the example that when you're telling the students what to do versus the describing versus the describing of the quality of what they're producing i think we're in a different place right so so i do understand the sentiment people have and i think the way around that is to make sure that as you sort of read through the rubric you describe quality and then the student can have the freedom of the opportunity to create whatever they want to as long as it fits within the description of what quality work looks like, as opposed to telling them exactly what to do. Now, the other point I want to make about rubrics is I think that one of the most favorable ways to build rubrics, because my concern sometimes with rubrics is that they are difficult. They're challenging to create. And as we talked about the analytic rubric last week, and we talked about all the different types of rubrics, some of them are labor intensive. And so we want to try to create as much efficiency as we can without losing too much effectiveness. And I think another way to create some efficiency for yourself when you develop your criteria is to make sure that your criteria is as task neutral as possible. Now, let me be clear. You can create task specific rubrics and there is some advantage to that, or you can create task neutral rubrics. So you can do either. But why task neutral? Well, the reason I like task neutral rubrics is because they essentially are no less effective, but they are more efficient because every time you change the task, you're not changing the rubric. 
So by having a task neutral rubric, you really are focused on the learning and your rubric is going to describe quality as it relates to the learning and not the task. And so this is best, of course, when you have uh, a learning outcome or a competency or, or uh, you know, a standard that you're assessing multiple times throughout the year. You know, for example, science teachers often have students analyze and interpret data. Now, they're going to do that several times throughout the course of a semester or the course of a, an entire year. So you can either create task-specific rubrics that are focused on the specific data set that they're analyzing. But if you change the data set, you then have to change the criteria, which is going to force you to reteach the criteria, and it's going to force a little bit more work. And then you get into what I often refer to as the death by rubric spiral, where you've just got mountains of rubrics in three and a half inch binders on your shelves, and, and everybody's losing their mind about which rubric we're using today, Mr. Shimmer. By creating criteria that describes without being specific to this task or the data set, you can then use the same rubric if you actually change the data set. And that's the question. The question you can ask yourself to know whether or not you actually have a task neutral rubric is this. If I change the task, but I'm assessing the same learning, could I use the same criteria? And if the answer is yes, then you have a task neutral rubric. And that allows that criteria to run longitudinally because I think that's the most effective way. Again, what's the point of making criteria transparent? It's so that criteria starts to become embedded in the student's mind to ideally a point where we don't need the criteria anymore because the student has a clear sense of what quality looks like. So again, you can be as specific as you want but just know that will have a ramification. The more specific you are to a specific task, the more likely it is you're going to have to change the rubric if you change the task. And I think this helps a lot with performance assessment, with inquiry-based learning and project-based learning, where those experiences are still about the learning. And it's important that teachers not get caught up in just doing inquiry or doing project-based learning. What's really critical is that we use inquiry and we use project-based learning to get students to reach certain outcomes or competencies or standards. And so by creating the task neutral rubric, you end up creating more of a focus on the learning that those learning experiences are supposed to reveal. And again, I think that as we focus on our efficiency, we won't be any less effective because our criteria will be clear. Now, of course, we don't want our criteria to be too generic where it's absolutely useless. But if you create task-neutral rubrics, like for analyzing and interpreting data, you could actually create not only task-neutral rubrics, but you could create subject-neutral rubrics. Because let's not pretend that science is the only class that analyzes and interprets data. We do that in social studies or history classes. We do that in math classes. We even do that in physical education classes. And there's lots of places that we do that. So it creates efficiency with the development of criteria. And again, there is a sweet spot between a rubric being too generic and almost useless in the other direction. But I think there is a place for that kind of task neutrality, if you will. So find a way to build rubrics that describe quality rather than prescribe output. 
and then also try to develop as much as possible task-neutral rubrics that are learning-centered. And that way, if students demonstrate what they know in a variety of formats, you don't have to change the criteria because the criteria is focused on the learning all of those formats are meant to reveal. That's all we have for today. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. My personal Twitter handle, of course, is at Tom Shimmer. And also please email me your questions for Assessment Corner or suggestions to TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Katie Martin. She is the author of Learner-Centered Innovation. So we're going to explore how schools can empower kids to explore and learn how to make an impact on the world. So really excited about that conversation. Again, thanks for joining me this week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.